You're listening to WMUA News. I'm Owen Embry. In the canon of UMass alums, one of the most consistently overlooked figures is poet and musician David Berman. Through eight albums with his band Silver Jews, he established himself as one of the most lyrically dense and skillful songwriters in rock music history. In the mid-1990s, he lived here in the Pioneer Valley and received a master's degree in poetry from UMass, where he studied under former professor and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet James Tate, while also serving as a teaching assistant. It was during these years that he wrote and recorded 1994 Starlight Walker and 1996 The Natural Bridge. His lyrics dealt with faith, social ideals, and personal struggles through mundane imagery like convenience store mirrors, state birds, clothes hangers, and split-level ranch houses. He saw himself as a poet first and foremost, and largely rejected the rock star life, preferring not to tour and to limit publicity when possible. In 1999, he published his only collection of poetry, titled Actual Air, of which Tate wrote, quote, They are narratives that freeze life in impossible contortions, unquote. Berman would disband Silver Jews in 2009 and receded from the public almost entirely until releasing his final album, Purple Mountains, now regarded as an instant classic, under the same name shortly before his death in August of 2019. I spoke with Bob Nastanovich of Pavement, who was a longtime friend and founding member of Silver Jews, about David's creative origins, his body of work, and his struggles with mental health. Have a listen. How did you, what's the story behind you first meeting David? How'd that happen? Um, I was, yeah, no, I mean, there's 11 thousand students at University of Virginia and there was 3,000 of them in our first year of class and um, I, I met a guy very early on when I was at UVA named Maynard Sipes and he was booking all the rock shows in town um, and uh, I basically started putting up flyers so I could get into shows for free and um, I lived about a quarter quarter mile from David's dorms, and like um, basically, I met him when I was putting up rock show flyers, like the second month I was at UVA. And we didn't really become good friends until a couple months after that. Then we just kept seeing each other at the punk rock and you know weird music shows around town that Maynard would book. And then you know we were pretty fast friends. Uh, by the end of our first year of college, which would have been spring of 86. Um, you know, we we're definitely close buddies then. Yeah. And uh, when were you first exposed to his literary talents or his artistic talents in general? I mean, I knew that he was what you call an Eccles scholar at UVA, which put him in a group of about, I'd say maybe 150 or 200 people. He was a very talented writer, and he'd been recognized by James Tate and Charles Wright very early on in his college career as being very gifted. And, you know, but at the same time, he was a very normal 18 and 19-year-old. I mean, I mean, normal from the sense that he went to class and partied. But, you know, part of that was his astounding creativity, um, which, you know, was obviously extremely entertaining. His work was just uh, a bonus. Throughout his time at UVA, he compiled quite a bit of work, but he was always carrying around bits of paper and napkins and uh, pens and whether you're hanging out at a bar or a party or whatever that, he was always taking notes and uh, making observations and drawing cartoons. So it was just part of his shtick. And then sometimes 
he would isolate himself and feverishly write things. I remember looking through, this would have been 87, 88, um, looking through his bedroom window all the time, wondering if he, he was interested in going out for the night. Yeah, he would signal like, you know, because we didn't have cell phones. Um, hmm. He'll be out in an hour, you know, so we'd check back on him in an hour because he lived across the street from me. You know, before I lived with him, he lived, lived across the street. And um, he, had, he had an old-fashioned typewriter and uh, really kind of cool, uh, meticulously decorated room. David was always a, um incredible collector of unusual things, and he was highly organized, feverishly organized. So, um, you know, like his room was very precious to him throughout the time that I knew him. And, you know, if you went in there, you felt like you were kind of sitting in somebody's office. What was your guys' plan for uh, after UVA? I mean, my plan was to move to New York City and become a bus driver. He left um, UVA, and he spent the first summer after we graduated in Austin, Texas. And um, he was there for three or four months. He was, like, washing dishes. And, like, Austin was... An amazing place back then, um, you know, before it kind of like became the ultra commercial hole that it is now in a way. But um, and uh, he loved it. And I moved to New York and somehow, perhaps even wrongly, maybe convinced him to move to the New York City metropolitan area. I think he. You know, he wanted to be with his buddies. He had, a, in addition to myself, Malcolm was there. Malcolm moved there at about the same time as he did. Hmm. And then the two of them moved out to um, Brooklyn, like Greenpoint, Williamsburg, like before they were like places where you had to spend four thousand dollars a month to get an apartment. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, what the recording process was like for those first tapes in New York. How those came about? Yeah, the first year or two, we just had a tape recorder like one you'd buy from a thrift store for two dollars with a ac adapter i was very fortunate that i had a basement apartment in hoboken that was very cheap and we lived below a very loud family that were kind of like 24-hour party people <laughs> and i think there was like in a very small space there was like eight to ten people living directly above us we were in the basement and that allowed us the opportunity at any hour, really, to be as loud as we wanted to be. So we could just put the tape recorder on top of the box TV set, and I would just try to keep time. I didn't really have proper drums, and they had two small amps and three or four guitars. So before we ever went in the studio, um, you know, that's the way the records were made. And we never intended them to be released, but David had heard of and then befriended Dan Kretzky and sent him these tapes, and he, I guess, you know, you got to keep in mind, like, this is an era where Daniel Johnson was a celebrated artist kind of, you know, using the same very limited technology, um, if you can even use the word technology to describe it. But it was like the peak of lo-fi. And so we were all hanging out a lot. And when there wasn't anything to do in New York City, which was only like two or three days a week, um, we would just drink beer and, and make up songs. And, and one of the brilliant things about working with David is that the lyrics would always come first. Um, basically, you'd build your songs around whatever he'd written down on a sheet of paper. And then at some point, I guess, you know, 
you know, through, you know, via Dan's support, we ended up in the studio. Um, David, I can't remember the exact summer. It would have been like 91 or 92 if I had to guess. But we, but he had moved down to Oxford, Mississippi for a few months where he'd met a guy that was running out of chemistry lab for $150 a month. So he just lived in there. And so Stephen and I traveled down to Oxford and uh, Dan had booked us three or maybe two or three days at Eastley Studio in Memphis, which is a very reputable recording studio. We went in there and, you know, we, of course, were, it's always nice to have Malcolm because he's a very gifted musician. Um, but we, you know, immediately, obviously you're apprehensive about going to a real recording studio when you, you know, when your music's very crude um, in terms of, it's, you know, <laughs> and uh, I was wondering uh, if you know what drove David to go to uh, graduate school and uh, sort of if he continued to if he planned to like continue with the Silver Jews or if he was taking like a more of a step towards academia, if you know anything about that. Well, I think that I think that's an excellent question. And I think that, you know, part of it is is that obviously he wasn't making anything approaching a living off of early Silver Jew stuff. And, um, you know, he saw, you know, how strenuous touring was for pavement, um, both in 90, 91 and 92. And that was something he wasn't really comfortable with. And, so he realized that he couldn't make a living off of Silver Jews, or at that point couldn't make a living off of his own poetry. It was just a nice diversion, very entertaining diversion for him that he was very passionate about. But he realized that he didn't want to be a security guard in an art museum um, throughout his 20s. So I think he realized that his greatest talent is as a, as a, as a poet and a writer and drawer you know, to a sense, because he, he drew print cartoons. So it just kind of presented an opportunity for a proper avenue for somebody in their early 20s to be a successful writer. Um, I think he did that without anticipating that Silver Jews a few years, few years later would be something that he would be able to make a living off of. <laughs> so when he went to UMass, um, he really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a challenge. And he succeeded there. And then, he, you know, he first started doing what a lot of students in that situation do, and that's, you know, being a teaching assistant. And I think he sort of enjoyed that. But, you know, that was kind of a huge challenge for him to, you know, be teaching English writing to undergrads. And uh, being at UMass kept him focusing on his writing. And, you know, who knows? I mean, if Silver Jews had not, you know, gone on to be something he could carve a living out of. I mean, you know, and obviously he didn't, you know, during his lifetime, he didn't really gain any wealth from it, but, like, he was able to eat and drink and live in decent places. Um, you know, I think that uh, then, you know, who knows? He might have become, you know, an English professor someday, but he didn't have to worry about that um, as the late 90s arrived. Yeah, and... uh what do you know about that uh, time with the late 90s for David and sort of what relation you had to the Silver Jews during that time? Because I know you mentioned Well, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Because that's because you know, that would have been sort of an interesting era for me and David. That would have been the sort of the area that I saw him the, era that I saw him the least. Um, 
as far as I know, he got pretty wild. Um, but uh, I didn't see too much of that. I only heard about it, you know. Um, and then, you know, after that, as that New York era came to a close, um, Rob Bingham, his, his one of his dear friends, who sadly died in his 30s, um, he was a Louisvillian. Rob was. And he sort of brought David to Louisville, and David moved into my house at 907 Central Avenue in Louisville across the street from the racetrack, you know, for lack of a better place to live. It was sort of a flop house for a lot of people. I would just let people stay in there for free. And pretty instantly, within the first few months he was there, um, I knew his, what became his wife, Cassie Berman. I'd known her since she was a teenager. And they met at a party and, um, you know, kind of love at first sighted it. And, you know, basically the first several months of their relationship were spent in my house in Louisville, um, which was a crowded house at the time. I think there was about five or six of us living in a place that was like eight or 900 square feet with wow. a corgi, you know. And um, they just decided that they would, that they didn't really like the Louisville vibe. And that's what led them to Nashville. It was a very productive period for David. Um, he was writing and making records, and he was just, he became very obsessed with Nashville and its culture and its country music culture. And, um, you know, then, then during the early years of this millennium, I would have been, I would have spent two or three years as a jockey agent. And so that meant that my girlfriend, who was a jockey at the time, was traveling to places like Hot Springs, Arkansas, Louisville, Chicago. And, yeah, so I would keep in touch with David, but I wouldn't see him with extreme frequency. But we would always, I mean, I actually only speak for myself. I would always go out of my way to hang out with him because he was one of my best friends, you know. So um, I didn't really see... I mean, I knew he had dark sides, and, you know, the one thing you got to keep in mind about David is, like, you know, even the first few months I knew him, I knew he suffered terribly from chronic depression. And, um, you know, throughout the course of his life, since he was a young boy, um, there was hundreds and hundreds of attempts by a wide variety of professionals to solve his struggles with depression. And, you know, normal, the number of different therapies and techniques and, um, you know, some things would work for a while and, and, and his general insanity would overwhelm the treatment for for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and, you know, the thing is he, he did struggle a lot, but, you know, he did, he did a hell of a job of, um, persevering and making the most of his time when he wasn't struggling. He was, just, he was just always the kind of person that made it very clear when he needed to be left alone. And in a lot of ways, because he was so much fun and so exciting, you know, a lot of us would just wait around until he was available. Did you have a hand in the Purple Mountains record? No, no, I was actually supposed to play drums on one or two songs, and um, I was working so much. He was really disappointed in me because he was living, like, sort of in the Chicago area. He was living 
Drag City had a house um, um, about 20 miles from Chicago, and David lived there by himself. And it's you know I was living in Des Moines, Iowa at the time, and and it's about a six-hour drive, and and um, he kept wanting me to come up and play drums on um, one or two songs on the record, um, specifically the song about his mother, and. He became eminently frustrated with me because I just, I just didn't have the time to do it. I was working 65, 70 hours a week in the horse racing industry in Des Moines, and he didn't understand why I couldn't put down my job and just drive up there and play drums. There was just like a, a four- or five-month period where I just didn't have the time for it. That kind of irritated him. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of that album and sort of the legacy that David's left behind, his body of work in general? Well, I mean, I, I think basically, I think, I'm very pleased that, you know, something that was that difficult for him to make. Um, I'm very, very pleased that he finished it because there was, I mean, I've been in several situations in recording. In fact, just in the last month, I would have been asked about Terror Twilight um, via interviews dozens of times. And then same thing with Crooked Rain back in the day. There were both albums that, you know, unlike the other three pavement records, um, there's nothing smooth about the recording process of either of those albums, our second and our fifth. Um, you can multiply that times 100 when it comes to Purple Mounds. I mean, he, he, he worked on that, stopped and started on that, switched musicians, tried out Malchus when Vancouver, worked with Dan Behar, worked with loads of different people in loads of different situations traveled around to various Airbnbs, other rental spaces all around the country. Um, he became sort of obsessed with it. Um, it sort of overwhelmed um, what he spoke about. And it was interesting after he died, several people who we mutually knew um, reached out to me and said that they saw signs, clear signs over the last six months or year that he was alive that, you know, regardless of the material of the record and how dark and, you know, to a certain extent suicidal a lot of the songs are, they had had personal experiences with David that they were very scared that he was going to um, kill himself. And at his funeral, a lot of people reached out to me and were like, oh, I should have told you about it, Bob. Like, <laughs> and I just, I said, look, I really appreciate that. But like, at what point did you, do you think that I could ever reach out with my right arm and stop a freight train, you know, I mean, um, no, the guy was very determined to do everything that he did. And, um, that was including making a choice to end his own life. So, um, you know, I mean, there's just no nothing you can do. Um, in my opinion, when anybody dies, you know, most people, it's not by their own doing, not by their own choice. Um, but David, his life was filled with an incredible amount of pain. It was a very difficult life ever since he was a young boy. I mean, I would say even before he was 10 years old, um, he struggled and he was undergoing therapy. Um, and nobody really could successfully solve his problem. And I don't think that he's alone at all in that regard. I just think it's pretty remarkable to struggle that much in your life and still find a lot of ways to create 
a lot of amazing stuff and not only inspire people who didn't know him, but also inspire a lot of his friends and colleagues that loved him and appreciated his work.